I really believe that the universe or God or whatever you believe in a higher power hands you sometimes what appear to be the worst situations to help you live a fulfilled life. So I always felt like it wasn't my reality, that it was a kind of shift in the seismic plates of my life that needed to happen. I needed to be shook up because where I was headed was such a sad reality for someone that had so much to give. I always believed that, even in the darkest moments. gives you two choices when it throws everything at you. You can let it swallow you whole or you take those lemons. And as the old saying goes, you turn it into sweet, delicious lemonade. And that's exactly what this podcast is all about. Welcome to Lemonade. I'm your host, Elizabeth O'Neill, and I'll be sharing the incredible stories from inspiring people who've turned the hardest times in their life, their lemons into lemonade. Because let's be real, we all want to know how they did it, the lessons they learnt, and what life is like sipping limoncello on the other side. Let's get juicing. Lisa Burling was living it up in London as a PR powerhouse, spearheading these huge global campaigns and rubbing shoulders with the rich and famous when she decided it was time to move back home to Australia, settle down in a small coastal New South Wales town and start a family. Everything was cruising along just as she'd imagined it. She'd reconnected with her high school sweetheart, given birth to her first child, Luca, and fallen pregnant with her second son, Nate, not long after. But her picture-perfect life quickly unravelled. A challenging pregnancy meant Nate was delivered via emergency C-section eight weeks early. And if that wasn't difficult enough, just 24 hours after he was born, her partner called to let her know he no longer loves her and their relationship was over. Suddenly finding herself as a broke, unemployed, single mom to two little children, one of which was fighting for his life, Lisa hardly recognised her new reality. What follows next is a true phoenix rising from the ashes story. Lisa opens up to me about how losing everything allowed her to start again and design the life of her dreams. Enjoy. Here we have Lisa, and I'm so excited to have a big chat with her. Lisa, thank you so much for coming on Lemonade. Thank you for having me, Elizabeth. I'm excited. This is so exciting. So I actually interviewed Lisa for my blog maybe a couple of months ago, and for the interview it was almost like a podcast chat. Like it was very conversational and we just had an absolute ball. So it was so natural when I started the podcast that I really wanted to have a chat with you, so I'm very thankful you're here. What I want to do is kind of get to where it all started for you because the thing is on paper you're a published author you've got two amazing beautiful kids you're the director of a seven-figure PR boutique boutique PR agency your life seems like an absolute dream well I guess it kind of is but as you know no one gets to that point without working really hard. And where I started from, you know, only four and a half, five years ago, it's almost unrecognizable to me. As you know, I've found myself an unexpectedly single mum with a preemie baby, two days old, a three-year-old. I'd quit my big PR job. I'd worked globally and and come back to Sydney. And I thought I was just going to be a mum. And in a split second, a phone call from the boy's father, I found myself unemployed, wondering where I was going to live, no money, and these two little people, one of whom was fighting for his life. 
were relying on me and that was my reality. And I say it now very calmly, but, you know, at that time, it's, it's almost like you're in some weird soap opera. You can't believe that that's your reality. So when you say all those things about where I am now, I always think it's so important that we remember where we've come from and all the hard work that happens in between. And that's exactly right. And that's why you were the perfect person to speak to, because I really consider you the ultimate turning your lemons into lemonade. Before we get to all that, I want to give the listeners a chance to get to know who you were pre-kids, pre-meeting your your then partner, pre-business. What were you like at school and how would people have described you? So the schoolgirl me was, I guess, the quintessential good girl. You know, I always did well at school. I worked really hard. I was an absolute people pleaser, you know, wanted everyone to like me. But yeah, I enjoyed school and I was you know, friendly and had a lot of mates. I was into dancing. I loved dancing. I played netball. So I was probably the typical Aussie girl. And then, you know, in the teenage years, I went through all the things that we go through as women with puberty and not being sure of who you are. But the common thread throughout all of it was my love of writing and wanting to be a journalist. And that was really where I decided that that was where I wanted to take my career once I finished school. But yeah, I was a dork, to be honest. I was a bit of a nerd. I had a perm fringe. Every craze that was going, I was into it. I loved Kylie Minogue well before it was cool to love Kylie Minogue. So yeah, I was a a dag, but a happy happy dag. Exactly. (laughs) And then you say in detail in your book about what a great time you had in your 20s. What was life like for you then? It was amazing. You know, I grew up in a regional area of Australia called Wollongong, just south of Sydney. And I found myself after I'd graduated building a PR career in London just a few short years later. And I was going for a year and I ended up staying for 12. So when you're in your 20s and you work in PR and you're in one of the biggest cities in the world with Europe, you know, a stone's throw away, Life is amazing. You know, I met people that I couldn't have even imagined, like Mick Jagger and, you know, was rubbing (laughs) shoulders with the people that delivered royal babies. And, I mean, it was just insane. I was surrounded by some of the best in my industry. I thought nothing of jumping on a plane, you know, for a few days to go here or there for work or pleasure. So I had a high disposable income. I was really living, you know, the ultimate life of a a single free 20-something. And then what brought you home then? Was it that pressure, I guess, to start ticking off the items on the list that as women, I think we feel that real pressure to do? It was 100% that. And in some ways, I'm grateful for it because it's led to other things. But at the time, you know, I was in my early 30s and London is a crazy city and I was starting to feel tired. Yes, I had people saying to me, mainly women, interestingly, do you want to start a family? What are you going to do? Are you going to do it here? You're going to go back home. And I just really felt like it was the right thing to do. You know, being the good girl, it's like, okay, I'll go home, you know, and that's where I'll start a family if that's to be my reality. And I'll go back to, you know, a a PR career in Sydney. And then you reconnected with an old flame from school. Is that right? And was there a sense of, okay, great, we've reconnected. This was what was meant to be. And this is my lot in life. Because I think you say in your book, you're even working part-time at the local council in a regional city. Yeah, that's right. So yes, I did reconnect with an old flame. And yes, I did, you know, being a storyteller at heart, think that 
what had happened was I was, you know, the girl that had travelled the world and ended up with the boy next door. And that was a narrative everyone bought into. It was amazing. You know, I was like, he's solid and this is what I'm going to do. And little by little, I found myself being stripped of my own identity. And the only person to blame for that is me. I let it happen. But I did end up even further south in a smaller town called Kayama because my partner at the time, you know, wanted to go that way and found myself in a three day a week basic comms job I could have done when I graduated. And when, you know, 18 18 months, two years before I'd been in London, it was quite a, a massive change of lifestyle. How did you deal with that adjustment? Because I think you had your first child, Luca, at that time as well. Is that right? That's right. So Luca is now eight. But yeah, I'd had Luca and I actually fell pregnant with my second son, Nate, when we were in Kayama. And the truth is, I think I just lost who I was. I wasn't sure of my identity when I was back in Australia because I'd left at eight, 20. So I was very young. And I just honestly felt like that's what you should do as a woman, that this is what it is now. You know, you can't have a big career and be a mum and do them both well. You know, those days are gone. So it was a really negative self-talk. Thank goodness I didn't listen to it. But yeah, life could have been very different for me. And it would have been a life half lived and I surely would have been miserable. And then you had your second son, Nate. What was that like? Having Nate has been, I guess, the greatest gift for me. But the way that he came into this world was incredibly traumatic. I talk about it in the book, as you know, I had placenta previa um, and the worst kind you can have. So basically the exit was blocked to put it in really simple terms. I was very unwell and the chances of premature birth were high. And that's what happened. I went into labor at 32 weeks. Oh my God, that is Um, so early because I think I've said to you, Ollie was 33, nearly 34, but that extra week would have just been Yeah, and you're right. Every day, every hour counts, you know, in those final weeks when lungs are being fully formed and all that stuff. So, look, it's not a situation you ever think you'll be in and you don't want to, but it was my reality. So he arrived and it was traumatic for everyone. I had an emergency caesarean. And unfortunately, the way that his father coped with that was to remove himself from the situation entirely. And I do in the book, you know, with respect, obviously to my children as well, talk about that moment when I got the phone call saying that he didn't love me and that he was out. And yeah, out of body experience. (laughs) Crazy. I don't even know what to ask first. How on earth do you deal with that? I think Nate was two days old. Is that right? Yeah. What is running through your mind in that moment when you're hanging up the phone? I was actually on quite strong painkillers at that point. So I was was detached. (laughs) It was really handy. I was quite detached from it. And I also am the ultimate optimist. You know, I'm always a glass half full. So I was like, he's just not coping right now. He'll be okay. We'll get through it. And Nate was born in October. So Christmas wasn't far away. And I really felt like I could make it better. And, you know, back to how I was as a kid, I can, I can make this good. And so I hung in there. I hung in there. You know, I didn't want to come from, you know, I didn't want a broken family. I, might, I don't have anyone in my family that separated like that. It was just the worst of circumstances. So I just kept carrying on like everything was fine. I definitely went into fight mode rather than flight mode. And I had these two little babies that I had to care for. So, yeah, I just assumed it would all be okay and I could make it okay, not realising that you can't actually control other people. Did you tell anyone what was going on? Like, did you confide in friends or family? Not for a long time, not until January. Because you held I was that internally for how many months? Four three months. months, three, yeah, three, four months. Oh I was God. so ashamed. You know, even 
like five years ago, being a single parent wasn't spoken about as openly as it is now. You know, you and I having this connection and this bond and being so open wasn't around. So for me to publicly declare myself a single parent and own it was, whoa, just too far off the scale. And I was unemployed as well, don't forget. I mean, it, I just was like, how did this happen to the girl most likely to? So I was ashamed, embarrassed, disappointed, sad, and I couldn't even tell my parents because I didn't want to admit the reality. Once you tell someone, it becomes real. So you were literally a broke, single mother of two, one fighting for their life, no place to live. There was a lot of lemons. How do you, where do you turn from that? For me, the way that I dealt with it initially was just to focus on the basic human functions. So I needed to find somewhere for us to live. I needed to earn some money. I ended up going to Centrelink. And you know what? That's the single parent kind of starting block. You know, most of us end up at Centrelink at some point. But even when I was there, and you know, in the book, I talk about that story as being really pivotal when I went in. I truly believed that it was the beginning, but it was sure as hell not going to be the end. I really love that story. Would you mind if you tell that story to our listeners? Yeah, I'm really happy to. You know, people come into your life unexpectedly, and this is absolutely what happened. So, last time I'd been in Centrelink was to get paid parental leave, and it was really quite a happy visit. And, you know, I'll admit, I was judging other people in there going, oh, far out, you know, imagine being on benefits. And that here I was, you know, this, you know, with my nose in the air and now my nose right down going in and doing exactly that. So you sit, you get your ticket and you wait and it's luck of the draw who you get opposite you. And on that day I had the most beautiful man sit opposite me, had this lovely Cockney accent and I just broke down in tears. I just said, I'm here because I'm a single parent. It was the first time I'd publicly declared that to a stranger and I need to get my hands on every benefit I can and it's destroying me and I just broke down. And he handed me some Kleenex and he said, it's okay, love, and grabbed my hand. And he said, just see it as a helping hand, you know, one you can let go of when you're ready. And I just was like, oh, my gosh, I even get goosebumps now recalling that story. And I left there and I went across the road to a park and I got my phone out that my parents were paying for and I set a diary date for six months. And it said, see, I told you things would get better. And in six months when it popped up, they had. I can't wait to get to that part because I feel like to a lot of people listening, this situation that you must have found yourself in must have felt so helpless and hopeless. Was there a sense of being angry at the card you'd been dealt and more than that, I can't get myself out of this. This is my lot to be miserable, broke, sad, depressed and helpless. The anger and all of those feelings had subsided by the time I was, you know, openly dealing with my single parent reality. I allowed myself time to grieve and feel that because I knew if I didn't, it would come back and bite me in the ass at some point. And I still have my moments, but nowhere near like that. So I think for me, I really believe that the universe or God or whatever you believe in a higher power hands you sometimes what appear to be the worst situations to help you live a fulfilled life. So I always felt like it wasn't my reality, that it was a kind of shift in the seismic plates of my life that needed to happen. I needed to be shook up because where I was headed was such a sad reality for someone that had so much to give. I always believed that, even in the darkest moments. Were there any kind of self-care practices or anything you did to try and keep yourself 
sane, I guess, through this time? Not at the start because I was just so running on adrenaline. The biggest self-care thing that happened was my beautiful mum coming over every morning, and this was when I started to set up my business, with a chocolate croissant and a small latte from McDonald's. And she would look after my Nate while I started to build this business and Luca was at preschool. That was self-care, you know, just having my mum there to do that for me. What would you do without her have that help in those early stages? Oh my gosh. And even now, you know, my mum and dad are such a, an integral part of my support network. So yeah, I'm forever indebted to them. I can only imagine then how difficult it was because I know you are close with them, not sharing what had happened as well. Yeah, it was like living two realities. You know, you had the external one. And how much energy do we expend pretending everything's okay? And I did that at a time when I had no energy to give. So it's quite a miracle that I didn't have a breakdown at that point, to be honest. But sometimes the breakdown comes later. And I talk about that in the book as well. You had an idea to go back to work. You wanted to get back into PR because that's what you knew. How did it feel, the prospect of going back, perhaps even full-time, to an agency role and working nine to five and being away from your children? I honestly, when I really thought about that, and you know that I did actually apply for jobs at that time. And, you know, in Wollongong, where I'm from, there wasn't any agency. So I was looking at in-house roles. And I really, I felt like it was the thing I should do but not the thing that was going to be right. I knew that I needed to be there for these little boys and have that flexibility. So I actually went for jobs and got interviews and turned them all down because I had this strong feeling that my path was to create something for myself. And I really didn't know what it was necessarily a company or I I wasn't there, but I just thought maybe I can do this for myself. You know, and I think in times of darkness and confusion, one of the smartest things you can do is think, well, what have I got at my disposal that can help me? What's in my toolbox of resurrection? And for me, my PR career and my contacts were staring me in the face. And I just felt like I owed it to myself to give it a really good go. So you had the idea to start your own business. Firstly, how old were your sons at this age, at this time? Well, the first picture of LBPR, my PR consultancy, is Nate is in a baby seat on the table because he was still asleep, like a car seat. So he would have been three months. And even then I was actually toying with the business while he was in the NICU. So it had started to permeate in my head before he even left hospital. And how many people told you you were batshit insane? No one told me that, but I think there was a general feeling of, that's really risky, actually, and I'm not sure that that's the choice I would have made. But to the credit of the ones closest to me, and particularly my parents, at no point did they say, don't do it. In fact, my mum was the one that when I said, I don't think I can take these jobs, she said, well, you do what feels right. It's amazing. And that's the way I've lived my life ever since. So starting a new business while well, you've got a three-month-old, the only question that comes to my mind is, How? How did you make that work? And secondly, did you sleep? So how did I make it work? Well, you don't wake up with, you know, a PR consultancy like the one I have now. So we have to remember that I had no clients. I had a very basic kind of brand and I literally started by sending emails out to everybody I know. That's where it started, registered an ABN and bought a laptop. That's it. So that was very manageable. And you know, my mantra is all around little dreams and them being the, I guess, the power behind the big ones coming true. So I started very small, but as people started to connect with me and want me to work with them, it did start to get 
bigger. So did I sleep? No. (laughs) And I still had two very little kids, you know, and Nate still needed to be fed. And, you know, so I ran on nothing. I ran on adrenaline. You know, I juggled feeds and strategy documents. I was trying to work out how to run a business as well. I'd never run a business. I didn't know anything about zero or bass or any of it. I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah. (laughs) And you know what? Just don't even go there. Um, I learned very quickly that outsourcing accounting is a very wise decision. But yeah, so it was a crazy time, but there was something in me that just knew I had to do it. And the truth is it gave me such a boost of self-confidence. It gave me a sense of purpose and I needed that. I was looking for, I guess, recognition that despite everything, I still had something to give. And still mattered and was still worthy as well. Because I think with everything you've gone through, and I know people have had similar experiences, it's that self-worth that's really chipped away, isn't it? What were the kinds of things that you would tell yourself? Would you believe that you were unworthy and that good things weren't for you? Yes, yes. And do you know what, Elizabeth, that's still a struggle for me. And we've spoken about it. I think as women, that is, I don't know how we overcome that constant despite you know achievements constant it's not good enough or I'm not worth it or this imposter syndrome so I think strangely enough because I was starting at ground zero and I was the underdog in many ways I kind of had this brazen belief that I'd make it work and the insecurity and the self-confidence has actually become more of an issue as I've achieved things because the bar's set higher and the pressure you have on yourself is higher you become more visible and think people expect more of you so that's an interesting twist in the tale. I think at the start I was like, well, what the hell have I got to You've lose? Got nothing to lose. <laughs> <laughs> That's really interesting. But were there days there that you just thought, woke up and said, I can't juggle all this all, all of this. I just need to throw in the towel. Yes, there definitely were, but they weren't outweighed by the days where I thought I could do it. And once you start to, you know, generate some income and people start to value you in that way, you suddenly start to become a little bit more braver about putting yourself out there. So I went to networking groups and I did things that as a natural introvert, I hate, but I knew it was important. So you just, again, little dreams just start to chip away at it. And suddenly it turns into something where you can see, you know, for the next six months, actually, I'm earning a decent income. And And doing it all yourself as well. Yeah. You know, that diary date, as I said, when that popped up six months later, I had a business where I'd actually got to a point where I could employ someone to help me because that's a big decision. Do you want to keep going and employ someone or just keep it tight and amongst yourself? And I was in a a much better place, you know, so the power of working hard, living with faith, courage and gumption, you know, my life is the proof of that. Because you'd given yourself a timeframe of six months to see if the business worked and then if it didn't, you're going to work for somebody else. Can you go back to that moment when the note popped up on your phone and said, see, I told you everything would be better. What were you doing that day? So when that popped up, I was actually in the car park of a major Sydney shopping center. I'd parked there because a new client of mine was up the road and I was going in to run a PR workshop. And it's a well-known, it's actually, it was the Salvation Army was the client who had come through a contact and it popped up and I was sitting in an Audi A3. I love Audis. So I got myself this car. I was going to do something with an amazing client. My boys were well cared for. We'd found somewhere to live. And I just was like, wow, look what's happened. When I wrote this, I was on a park bench and I'd literally been into Centrelink. So that's an incredible turnaround for six months. That can take other people years to do that kind of It can. But I think when you're a mum as well, and you'll appreciate this with Ollie, you can't wait. 
you know, you've got these little ones that are relying on you. You have to go for it. And the window is small. You know, I didn't want to get three years down the track and be floundering. I couldn't do it. You know, this, I had to make it work and I was going to do whatever it took for that to happen. Was there also a sense of wanting to provide a really incredible example to your sons through all of this? Was that part of your motivation and drive? That drives me every single minute of every single day. I don't think it's an accident that a lot of the single mums I come across are mums of boys and you and I are mums of boys. To be an example to them of what a woman is, that actually as women we can run successful businesses and still be a really present mum. You know, I've never missed a book week. I do pickups and drop-offs most days and my kids are at different schools. So it can work if you're super organised. But, yes, they, they drive every decision and my ultimate dream is to create a business where they, if they choose to, can step into it and work with me. That would be amazing. And what kind of woman, I guess, would you like them to describe you as when they're, I don't know, 20, 30, 40, when they're married and having children? Oh, that's such an amazing question. I would love them to describe me as a mum that was kind and fair and who understood where they were at and what they were going through. You know, my Luke is eight and that's a really interesting age to navigate and we've had a lot of conversations about how he's feeling because he's not a little boy but he's not, you know, grown up yet. So, and that, you know, that I showed them that actually if you work hard, you can pretty much have whatever you want and that success in life is happiness, that I showed them that as well. And how do they navigate, I guess, that you and your, their father aren't together and they're going through between different homes. Does that phase them or matter to them? I guess fortunately for me, Luca was only three and Nate was, you know, days old. So they don't actually know what it's like to have their mum and dad together. It's always been quite separate. I know there'll be questions about what happened and why, but generally speaking, it's always been their reality. And I think they, you know, they get a good contrast between the two of us. We're quite different people and I think it will probably build resilience and make them much more well-rounded people having that distinction. So, yeah, it hasn't been a big issue, but I know it can be when children are older. And how do you find the dynamic of co-parenting? So we're actually in a really good place. You know, when you choose to have children with someone, you're signing yourself up for life, regardless of whether you're married and stay together and all those things. So, you know, there's been a lot of forgiveness. And for me, the center of it all is always the children. And people say that, but it's the truth. So I don't ever want there to be a situation where we're standing next to each other on a soccer field or in an awards at school and we can't have a conversation. So it's not like that. We're actually in a really good place. And, you know, in my book, you know, he's the last person that I thank because what he actually gave me was the freedom to find who I was. And at 35, who gets that? Who gets to start again? So I'm so grateful. I surely would not be sitting here with you had that not happened. So he's actually the reason that my life has gone on to become the life of my biggest dreams, not just the little ones. How important is that to have that perspective about something that seemed at the time so catastrophic and is now your biggest blessing? Like how do you go from that mindset to this mindset now? Time is the greatest healer. And it's a cliche, but it's true. You know, I sit here five years on and I've done a lot of soul searching and I can look back at that version of myself and see that I was not who I was meant to be, was not my destiny. So that perspective, I think, allows you to, and that time allows you to kind of 
look at it for what it is, but also I, I just wasn't prepared to carry around the heavy coat of resentment and anger. It is so detrimental to you, but it's also detrimental to the people around you. And once I took it off, the lightness that I felt was amazing. And, you know, we live very separate lives. So as long as our kids are okay, that's the main thing. The idea came to you to write a book. Can you talk us through that? And was that process therapeutic? Oh my gosh, Elizabeth, writing a book. I naively thought because I love to write and, you know, my career is built on words that that would be a very easy process. I write about other people and businesses all the time, but when you're writing about yourself and something so personal, it is probably the hardest thing I've done, but equally the most rewarding. So I decided to write it because I would speak about my story and I would have particularly women come up and say, oh, you should write a book. And I thought, well, isn't a book a beautiful way to reach loads of people. It's a really efficient way to do that. But also there's things that I have done for myself based on this, you know, little dream strategy that I could see would help others because I didn't want to write a book that was just, you know, about my life because that's boring. It's like, well, this happened, but then what did I do and how can other people apply it to their own lives if they're going through a tough time or they're just stuck or whatever it might be. So I was clear that that's what I wanted it to be like. And then I honestly just sat down and started writing. I can tell you 80% of what first came out did not make the book. And I worked with a friend who's a prolific author, Emily Gower, who helped me shape it into something that would mean something to someone else. I had it beautifully designed because I wanted it to be the kind of book you could pick up and put down. And that was... I think I might be... <laughs> Is that my door? I think so. <laughs> Sorry. <coughs> it's fine. Two years from the moment I said I was going to write it, it finally came to life. Sharing that vulnerability is really empowering as well, isn't it? Is that what you found through doing that? And was it a big motivation to be, I guess, helping other people who don't have that voice to speak out about what they're experiencing? Yeah, you're absolutely right, Elizabeth. You know, I had to ask myself, why am I doing this? Because if it's just for my own personal kind of cathartic reasons, then quite frankly, I could just buy a journal from Kiki K and write it all down. But it really came from a place of wanting to help other people, help the version of me. You know, I wish this book had been around, you know, five years ago for me. So that's where it came from. And I just, I knew from the conversations I'd had that there was power in in what I had experienced. And I feel blessed that I actually am in a communications PR career because it allows me to communicate things relatively easily. So the fact that I've got that and I was handed a crap situation for me was the perfect storm to actually help other people. And quite frankly, that's why we're on this earth, as far as I'm concerned. Your book is literally your lemonade out of the lemon. <laughs> yes, it is. It is literally my lemonade. <laughs> And there's been some really exciting news in terms of your book. And would you mind sharing that with us? Oh, I would love to. So this is incredibly recent, but, you know, back to the power of little dreams and chipping away. So I birthed the book. I launched it. I was blown away by the number of people that purchased it. It was amazing. But I always had a bigger dream that I would be picked up by a major publisher. That is something I've held in my heart for a long time. And I knew that if I, that was going to happen, I had to do something other than just birth this book. I had to put it in a place where the universe could meet me halfway and put it in the hands of someone that could make that happen. So I took myself off to Dimmicks in Wollongong, which is the city I live in, and I asked John, the owner, if he would stock my book. And it was one of the most nerve-wracking things I've ever done. And thankfully, he said he would. 
And that was a win. And off I went, you know, skipping away, very happy. And a couple of weeks later, I had a call from someone at New Holland, which is a global publishing company, does adult and children's books, which is great because I have plans for a children's book as well. And they offered me a contract because they'd seen my book and taken it back to the team and they felt that there was something in me and with what I had to say that they could work with. And so next week I go off to their office for the first time and I get to meet with an editor and a design team and a publicist and talk about what version two of this book looks like. And I just don't know where that's going to take me, but that's an example of, you know, just keep going, be brave and great things will absolutely happen. That's exactly right. I'm a very huge believer in everything happens for a reason. Do you believe in that firstly? And secondly, like that sequence of events for the your book to even land in their hands. It's incredible. It's amazing. And yes, I do believe everything happens for a reason. I believe every person that comes into your life is predetermined. Whether or not you're aware of it is another thing, but I don't believe in coincidence at all. I think everything is exactly as it, it should be. So did you always think that or did it take going through this, your tough time to realize that? It definitely took going through the tough time. And the reason is I actually think I was asleep up until I was 33, like emotionally, mentally, spiritually, just going through the motions. I think I woke up at that point and then I started to be far more aware of what was happening and why and, you know, that the bad things actually aren't bad things at all. They're actually the best things. I'd like to ask the next question. I hope this is okay. But is there any ever any moments where you look back and think, if I'd stayed with my partner at the time, what would my life look like right now? And would it even be half the life that you have now? I often think about that and it scares me. It scares me to think what I would be doing. I would have not reached my potential. I wouldn't be a great mom. I'd be miserable, lost. But what scares me more is that there's people out there and that's their life that they think that that's all they're worth or that you just have to accept that that's how things are. And I just don't believe that. You know, I'm in my early 40s now and my time goes so fast. I'm like, I am not prepared to waste a minute of this life. I'm not going to wait. So that, again, is why I share my story so freely because I think, you know, if you are unhappy or, you know, living a life that doesn't feel like it's yours, then you've got to do something about it. Why do you think, and I feel like it's women in particular, get trapped in those sort of situations and don't back themselves to get out of it? I don't know whether it's just our makeup. You know, genetically, we are wired to not back ourselves and lack confidence. I don't see it in men. You know, not that they don't feel that, but they don't show it, generally speaking. So, as I said at the start, you know, I think it's something as women that we need to overcome together. And yeah, let's just start behaving in a way where we don't feel those things because we shouldn't, you know, we give birth for goodness sake, you know, we juggle so many things. We should be confident. So yeah, I don't know the answer. And as I said, I still struggle with it. That's what I experienced when I, through my blog and through the podcast and people I speak about, it's always women who feel like they're not enough and feel like they don't have the means and they're not worth fixing their life or improving their life. And it's incredibly, I don't know, it makes me feel really, really sad whenever I have messages from women like that. I had one in particular, actually, this woman who said to me that she, her husband had left her and she sees the whole situation as a big black mark on the life of her and her daughter. 
And I just said, whoa, stop that right there. This is not a black mark on you and your daughter at all. Your husband's the one that left and had had an affair. This is a green tick for you and your life. What advice, I guess, do you have for women to shift that from a black mark to a green tick over their story? I get similar messages and it's amazing how freely people will share their own story. Honestly, I think a lot of it is mindset and that's something that someone can't hand you. You know, I've read a lot of self-help books, but at the end of the day, I had to make the decision in my heart and my head that I was not going to see what was happening to me as bad. I was going to flip it and see it as good. Even as simple as writing a list, you know, of all the good things that could come out of that bad thing. And then just living that way. And it sounds like, oh yeah, well, that's easy for you to say, but I was in a really horrible place and I managed to do it. So I I think mindset is huge and surround yourself with people that are your cheer squad and lift you up, you know, get rid of the people that don't make you feel good. Because when you're going through that, you need those people that say, keep going, you've got this, you can do it. I know you said that you didn't have any self-care practices initially, but as the years went on, were there things that you really relied on to keep you pumped up and feeling good? Like, did you see a psychologist or? Yeah. So, and you know, in the last part of my book, it's all about the self-care journey because I did get sick physically and mentally because I just thought I was super mum and I'm not, you know, I'm a human and I have limits. So yeah, I do. I see a psychologist once a month, which is amazing, you know, to have someone impartial, just listen to you. And regardless of giving you advice, it makes a huge difference. One of the, I guess, fortunate things about being a single parent is I get every second weekend to myself and you know, I'm actually an introvert, which is hilarious because I've chosen a career (laughs) and a life that is an introvert's nightmare. But I take myself away. So I just go off the grid and I'll take two days to go somewhere and just read or, you know, go to the beach or climb in the mountains, whatever it is. So that's really, really important. I also do little things like journal and, you know, you and I both love our doTERRA oils. Like doing that just makes me feel so good. And we have two little rabbits at home, little mini lops and watching them eat kale. Oh my gosh, that is like the most therapeutic thing ever. <laughs> I'm thinking about starting an Instagram just called Bunnies Eating Kale. Oh my God, what do you mean? What's so cute about a bunny? It's just kale. the way they pick it up. Like it's a big piece, like a piece of lettuce, and they just chop, 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 and then it's gone. You and have it's the to kid. send me this. I've never thought that a bunny eating I kale would be. I put it up on my Instagram, and if anyone's watching, they can find me and they can look at the post. <laughs> Bunnies Eating Kale. Were there ever. I know you've got heaps of positive self-care practices now. Were there ever any times that you could feel yourself dipping into really unhealthy ways of dealing with it? Like just for example, drinking too much or hanging out with the wrong people or anything like that? So I never drunk too much. And the reason was I was home at night with two babies and I was always paranoid that if I had even a wine, that something would happen and we'd need to go to emergency. So I never, I never did that. My downfall 100% was eating. Like I would gorge on chocolate and unhealthy stuff. I'd stop going to the gym and just feel gross. So without doubt, that was that was my thing, the food thing. What is it with food? Because I do the exact same thing. It's almost like a level of thinking that you're not worth eating nourishing food. Is that what it is? Yeah, it's that. But also for me, it just tasted so good. Like I went through a phase of lollygobble bliss bombs, just eating them like, all the time. And, you know, it's not good, but there's just something about that. The sugar, it's the sugar hit. 
you know, and then you feel crap after. And And it's a distraction, isn't it? I think my thing is when I know when I'm going through rough patches is I tend to order Uber Eats a lot. Yeah. I don't know what it is. It's the buzz of... Mm, I'm going to eat that and I'm allowed to eat that. And then it arrives at my door and I've done nothing. And Yeah, it's enjoyable. And yeah, and that's when, you know, every now and then's fine. But yeah. you can feel, I can feel myself slipping into unhealthy habits when, yeah, I don't even want to cook. I don't even want to take care of myself. Yeah, exactly. And you're right. It's linked to self-worth 100%. If you don't feel your body's worth nourishing with good stuff, then there's a whole heap of other things that probably need to be dealt with. And what advice would you give to, I know we did touch on this, but any woman out there or man who is listening and recognises themselves in the person that you were, what would you tell them? I would tell them that with the right mindset and perhaps taking on board some of the things that I've said I did, that life is going to be so much better than you could ever have imagined. All you need to do is live with courage. So be brave, have faith in yourself. And gumption is a word that I think needs to be resurrected and used all the time. It's the subtitle of my book. Get in and do the work. Figure out what you want, who can help you, what you have at your disposal to make it happen, and then just go for it. That's it. It's that simple. I love the quote, the world needs dreamers and the world needs doers, but most of all, the world needs dreamers who do. And that is the absolute crux of everything that I stand for, Dream a Little Dream Project and my book. There's no other secret. That's it. The people that have gone on to achieve did the work and committed to it. And looking ahead to the future, what does life look like for Lisa in the next, let's say, five years? I kind of don't know, which is really exciting. After having planned everything out to minute detail, I'm really at a point where I trust the signs and the people that come into my life. And I just want to be a little bit more free with it because that's where the magic happens when you just let, you know, things kind of happen. It doesn't mean I sit there and do nothing. You know, my PR consultancy, I have some some plans for that. I'm obviously going to be, you know, writing books, which is fantastic. But at the end of the day, when I go home, I'm a mum of two little boys and I love the house that I've built and I love the simple things. I really just cherish those moments when I'm at home with a glass of wine watching The Bachelor. Um, so good. <laughs> you know, and, you know, the moments when I'm patting their heads as they go to sleep, like, and maybe it's an age thing, but for me, that's a good, successful life. And how lucky am I that I can go out my front door and do all those other things and connect with people like you. But when I shut that door, I'm just Lisa, mum to Luca and Nate, with my two little bunnies eating kale, <laughs> watching Bachelor, drinking wine. And I am so happy with that. That's a happy life for me. And what are you most proud of? It's hard to answer this without sounding up myself, but <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> I am I am most proud of me, actually, and I would never have said this until quite recently. If I was to meet myself, I would be proud of her, and I think that's a lot of the mindset work as well. You know, they talk about inner child and all of that. I've been so hard on myself for decades. I have not loved myself. I've not given myself any credit, and I finally realized that actually if I want to be the best version of myself and my true self, then I have to 
love on myself. So I'm proud of that girl, this one over the last five years. And I feel like we're finally holding hands now with this version and we can go forward together. It sounds so ridiculous no. to talk about myself in the third person, no. but that's how I feel. Like I'm finally cutting myself some slack. And I think that's our problem is that we never are proud of ourselves. We never give ourselves a pat on the back. And that's what I've really learned in the last six months. Even when I was crossing the road here to come and meet you, I actually a thought went through my head of, I'm so proud of you, Elizabeth. And that sounds, again, now I've said it out loud with saying my name <laughs> third person, I realise how you feel. But I was like, look what you're doing. You're doing it and you're getting out there. And why is it so hard for us to be proud of ourselves and even say it? We feel embarrassed saying it. I know. And how, well, I've said to you how proud I am of you. I think it was the first thing I said when you walked through the door <laughs> and set all your amazing equipment up. But I am proud of you. And I think because we've grown up in a society, in a world where being proud of yourself is equated with being up yourself mm. and the whole tall poppy syndrome that we grow up with. Yeah, we're not allowed to say we love, our, we love ourselves. Yeah, it's like, oh, you're up yourself. It's like, actually, no. You know, that is so important to you being the best version of yourself. So, I'm proud of you and I'm proud of the fact that you're proud of you. (laughs) We're all proud. And I'm proud of you. (laughs) Now, I just want to, I like to finish off with this question. So what advice would the Lisa now tell the Lisa in her darkest moments when you're sitting on that bench outside of Centrelink? I don't think I'd give her any advice actually, because I firmly believe that when you're in that situation, you'll work it out because you're moving from, you know, that inertia of this is a crap situation to, okay, I'm going to fix it. When you're going to Centrelink, that's a forward step, even though it feels yuck, it's still progressing. I think all I would do is just give her a hug and say, girlfriend, you got this. Enjoy the ride. I'll see you in five years. I love that. That'd be it. Oh, Thank you so much. That is such a beautiful way to end it. I couldn't possibly think of anything to say. Oh, thank you, Elizabeth. I've loved every second of it. Thank you so much for sharing your story and your vulnerability and it will help so many people listening to it. And I will put in the show notes Lisa's Instagram and her book and where you can buy it because it is honestly so amazing. I've read it and I read it probably like in two days because I loved it so much I couldn't put it down. That's awesome. And it really inspired me to want to take care of myself in a really dark stage of my life this year. So I'm very thankful for that. And I'm thankful for you to be here. Thank you, beautiful. I can't wait to see where you go to. We'll chat soon. Thank you. Bye. A very big thank you to the incredible Lisa Burling for being so candid and honest in this episode. She inspires me every day and I'm so thankful our paths have crossed and I can call her a friend. If you'd like to get your hands on Lisa's book, Dream a Little Dream, and I highly suggest you do, the details are in the show notes. You can follow Lisa on Instagram at Lisa underscore Burling underscore. And as always, you can connect with me at Bambi and Baby underscore. If you're loving what you're hearing, please hit subscribe so you can keep up to date with each episode. And if you'd be so kind to leave a review and hit five stars and even tell your friends about Lemonade, I'd be really appreciative. See you here, same place, same time next Monday. See ya. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.